Come on, give the Lord a praise. Come on, lift up a praise. Thank you, Lord. Hey, thank you, Luke. Hey, good to be with you this morning in the house of God. You can be seated if you're in the room. Take a moment, join all those of you who are joining with us online, regardless of what platform you're tuning in on, what day of the week you're worshiping with us. Thankful that you've made time to worship Jesus with us and grow in our faith together. Hey, if you have your Bible with you this morning, turn or click to John chapter 1. And while you're turning or clicking there, I just want to take a moment and ask you to help me welcome some special guests that are in the house this morning. Last week, we had Pastor Eli and Elisa Brooks. It was great to see them and welcome them home from Alabama as they had been sent out to go from, uh, from this church to go and, and lead a campus uh, of, of, of the church called Daystar Church in northern Alabama. And this morning, we are blessed to have David and Monica Taylor in the house right there. Give them a hand. You guys stand up. Stand to your feet. David and Monica. Our church planners, many of you know them. If you don't know them, I want to encourage you to stop by after the service at a meet and greet, get to meet them, hear a little bit more about what God's doing in their life. They are church planners in the Middle East and in the nation of Turkey, doing a wonderful work for the Lord there. So you would not want to miss the opportunity to meet them and hear their heart, hear about maybe how you can prayerfully or financially support what God's doing in their ministry. So come on, one more time, honor them, give them a round of applause. Thank you guys, good to see you. Okay, turn to John chapter 1, and we're going to continue this morning in our series, God's Prescription. And the big idea, kind of the impetus, the inspiration for this series was a few weeks ago, we were preparing to go on a little family um, outing to a a resort that much of the fun was going to center around being outdoors and the pool, and they had several pools at this resort, you know, one of those places you go to, and and right just a couple days before we were about to go, actually, we ended up not going because the weather turned really bad that weekend, and they allowed us to just kind of push pause on the reservation and reschedule it for another time later in the summer. But right before we were about to leave, uh, one of our four kids came down with what we knew to be an ear infection. And so Amity hustled around, got the kid into the doctor, and, and they said, yeah, it's an ear infection. We're going to prescribe this. And, you know, we got four kids. It was, it's not our first rodeo at that type of thing. And Amity said, well, what about this other antibiotic that you guys have prescribed before? It seems to do a better job with the ear infection. And she said, you know, this isn't your first rodeo. That one really would be better at knocking it out. And so she was kind enough and gracious enough to write the prescription for that stronger antibiotic. And, and it just got me thinking that oftentimes we settle for the world's measure or standard of dealing with something in our life when God's word would really more fully and powerfully or quickly deal with it. A couple weeks after that, I began battling an eye infection. Thank you guys for praying for me, and I'm much, much better. I'm seeing clearly now. Last week I was seeing double, so twice as many people got saved at the end of the service. But this week I'm seeing clearly, and, uh, and so... And last, I think last week I, I asked the question, I said, I'm seeing double, I've got double vision. I mean, really, I was battling double vision, like there were two of you guys, each of you out there. And I asked the question, I don't know if I'm going to preach twice as long or twice as fast. I think it turned out to be twice as long. So sorry about that. But I'm better now. God's healing my eyes. But I went to the doctor the first time, and they prescribed one course of treatment. And it, it didn't work. I was still lingering with the infection. I went back to the doctor. They said, hey, we're going to have to ramp this up. And out of some concerns that they had about it really being a problematic infection, they said, we're going to have to pull out the big guns. And and they totally changed the course of of action. They ramped up the the dosage of antibiotic that I was taking out of concern that the infection could migrate back into my head and cause some real problems for me. And once again, God got my attention. I was like, God, I don't need any more sermon illustrations, you know. You could just heal heal my eyes. But it got my attention that oftentimes we settle for the measure that the world can offer. The measure of peace, the measure of joy, the measure of significance, the measure of freedom. Listen, there is a measure that the world can offer of some of those things. Jesus said it this way a couple weeks ago. We preached about God's prescription for peace. And he said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. And then what did he say? Not as the world gives to you. There's a measure of peace that you can find in the bottle or in the pills or with the person or on the website. But it is fleeting and circumstantial. And Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. It's an abiding peace that transcends your circumstances and even your understanding. And he said, that's the kind of peace that I leave with you, which implies inheritance. In other words, something that someone else comes and and procures or gains or saves or earns or builds and then passes to another generation simply because you're family. And he said, the kind of peace I'm leaving with you, my prescription for peace, is way beyond the world's prescription. I leave you my peace, the peace I've earned, the peace that I came and I purchased for you at the cross of Calvary through my death and my burial and my risen life. That's the kind of peace that God has for you. There's a prescription for every area of your life. 
We've talked about God's prescription for power that God intends for every believer. That's you, that's me, to be more than just church attenders. Jesus didn't come and, and die and give his life and, and go through what he went through on that cross to build a denomination or an organization. He came to make a way for sons and daughters to be rescued back into a life-giving relationship with him in which we are empowered by the spirit of God to become kingdom-building men and women of God. There's a, there's a prescription for power. It's an ongoing, everyday, present tense relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about God's prescription for success, that God has some things to say about how to live a life that is successful, and oftentimes it starts with redefining our measure of success from the world's standards and measures to what God really sees as significant, that what matters most to God must begin to matter most to us. Last week, we talked about God's prescription for America, and it was the 4th of July, but I gave the, 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 the caveat that the principles that we dove into last week would apply to every nation that would turn to God. But there's some things, there's a pattern that we found in the book of Nehemiah for grieving over the condition of our culture. And, 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 and Nehemiah, he sat down and he wept and then he knelt down and then he, and he prayed. And then after spending time with God and getting God's heart and getting some vision from God, he stood up and he began to act. And he brought restoration and revival to their nation. And today I want to talk to you about God's prescription for grace, grace and truth. And it's a little bit different because before I've said God's prescription for something, and then we've kind of jumped in and kind of built what, how you walk that out in your life. And today, I'm eliminating the word for in the title. It's not God's prescription for grace and truth. It's just God's prescription, grace and truth. Grace and truth. Can we pray over the word this morning, pray over our time together? And would you ask God to speak to you, to strengthen you, to encourage you? If there's an area in your life where you're weak or wounded or weary or hurting or struggling or doubting that today, the heart of God is to come into that very place, that situation, that relationship, that circumstance, that, that place in your heart or your mind, and he wants to come and he wants to do what only he can do, stir faith. Come on, let's just pray it. Father, thank you for your heart today to encounter your people and to remind them, Lord, of some things. Remind them of who you are. And remind us of who we are in Jesus. And maybe reveal some things that are new, Lord, that we've never apprehended or seen in your word, Lord, that will help us to stand more strongly, Lord, in, in who we are and who you are, God. That will allow us, Lord, to be, begin to move forward in a fresh way or a new way in a new season, God. And Lord, I do. I pray over everyone that's here in the sound of my voice, Lord, anyone who is, Lord, hurting, physically, maybe dealing with an ailment or, or, or a diagnosis, Lord, spiritually or physically or relationally, God. I pray over marriages and families, hearts and homes, whatever it is, God, where there's someone who's maybe struggling or hurting, Lord, I thank you that today, Lord, you really are our comforter, Lord. You really are, Lord. There's a, there's a prescription that you have and you desire to deliver it graciously to us today, Lord. Help us to have open hearts and open minds and spiritual ears and eyes to hear and to see, Lord, what you're doing, what you're speaking, what you're inviting us to, God. What an honor it is to be in this place with your people, in your presence, digging into your promises, Lord, what you're found in your word. We say, Lord, speak. Your servants are listening. We say, Lord, would you come and have your way? Would you help us to grow and, and, and become more like Jesus today in Jesus' name? Come on, all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. amen. John chapter 1, God's prescription, grace and truth. And God's word has a lot to say about grace. God's word has a lot to say about every area of your life. And in a culture, in a world where there are varying and increasing opinions about how to do life, about how to do marriage, about how to do family, about how to manage finances, about how to do sexuality and even identity, there's confusion and there are opinions that are increasing and varying and many of those things are muting or eliminating God and morality and the Bible from those things. God's word has a lot to say. Proverbs 4 has been our key scripture, chapter, verse 20 through 22, where he says, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Come on, listen to what God has to speak to you today. He says, do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they, my words, God's words are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. God's prescription, grace and truth. Grace in the New Testament is the Greek word charis, and it's used 159 times in the New Testament. God has a lot to say about grace. Of the 21 epistles, which were the letters that were written to the New Testament church, the early believers, men and women who had become Christ followers, saved by the marvelous grace of the cross of Jesus Christ, of the 21 epistles, 17 of them open up with some form of the statement, grace to you. God has a lot to say about grace. 
Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor, goodness, blessing, kindness, and forgiveness from God to us. Unmerited, undeserved. The Bible talks about saving grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. The Bible talks about justifying faith. Romans 3, verse 24 says all, that includes you and I, are justified freely by what? His grace. Other translations say all are made to be in right standing with God by grace. Justified. God no longer sees you through the lens or the filter of your sin or your past or your failures or your misgivings or your doubts. He now sees you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be justified by grace. When he sees you, he doesn't see all that stuff. He sees Jesus. He sees the blood of Jesus, the price that was paid by the son. You're justified. You can think about it this way. When you've been justified by the blood of Jesus, it's just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God sees me. Not because I didn't sin. I've sinned. We all are, are, have sinned. No one is without sin. That's the power of the grace of Jesus. We've been saved. We've been justified. And in John chapter 1, we, we read in verse 14, and it says this. It says that the word became flesh, this is speaking of Jesus, and made his dwelling among us. And catch this. It says we have seen his glory. Say Glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace, say grace, and truth, say truth. So it says the word became flesh and came and dwelt among us, and we've seen the glory of Jesus. And what was associated with the glory of Jesus? The fullness of grace and truth. And how do you know that our culture needs truth? Our culture needs Biblical truth. Our culture needs a standard, a plumb line. Our culture that is fleeing from and deviating from biblical morality and biblical truth. We need truth. But it says right here that Jesus was fully truth, but at the same time, he was fully grace. He wasn't grace on some days and truth on other days. He wasn't 60-40, truth or grace, depending on the situation. All the time, all the time, every day, full time, 100% grace while being 100% truth. It's, it's the prescription for our culture. And, and I, I challenge us often, I say, Rev City, we wanna be a people, remember the three C's, I say, we need to be a people that are moved with compassion, but we need to also, as we're moved with compassion, because there are many people who are moved, their heart is moved, they know there's a problem, but there's no conviction about the way and the truth and the life and the, and the, and the person to point people to and the way to so, solve the problems. I'm telling you, Jesus is the solution for our culture. We have to be a people of compassion, but we also need to be a people of conviction who also operate in courage, which is the willingness to stand up and speak up and say, I once was struggling with that issue. I once was lost. I once was, was, was far from God, and, and I turned to Jesus, and, and he turned my life around. And, and where I once had despair, he's began to fill my heart with a, a joy that is dependent not on my own circumstances or my own strength, but it's his strength. And I used to be addicted to that, or I used to be, be in those places, but God has rescued me. We need to be compassionate, but we also need to be moved with conviction, courageously sharing about Jesus. And it's what motivated Jesus. Come on, motivation matters. And all throughout the New Testament, when we're reading about the powerful, miraculous, glorious things that Jesus did in the lives of people, in the lives of the early people who would come to know him and, and see who he was and respond in faith to the salvation he was offering, all throughout the New Testament, we see that the preemptive, the, the preface to the power and the glory and the miracle that Jesus would work was this statement, moved with compassion. Moved with compassion. You could go and you could look for yourself, but Luke 7, trust me, Luke 7, Matthew 9, Matthew 13, Matthew 14, Mark 6, and again in Mark 8, Luke 19, and John 11, all places were very specifically, the Bible says, moved with compassion. Jesus healed their sick. Moved with compassion. Jesus, we've seen the glory of Jesus, and what we saw was the fullness of grace and truth. Here's why it's important, because truth without grace is mean. Grace without truth is meaningless. We must be a people of truth. We must have the standard of God's word. We must have a conviction to point people to God, point people to his word. I'm just telling you, anything else, my opinion about how to do it is not going to change someone's life, and it is shifting, sinking sand. The only place that we can encourage people that they can build their life, build their marriage, build their future, build their family, build their career, and everything else that God would call you to do is the firm foundation of God's word. 
grace and truth. We need truth, but it needs to be moved and covered with grace. That's the kindness of God that led us to repentance. Romans 2.4 says that. It says, do you disregard the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, his long-suffering nature, his patience with you, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? The same kindness of God that caused me to get saved is the same kindness that's going to be required to see the city of Lawrence, Kansas become saved. He was the fullness. We've seen the glory of Jesus, and what we saw was the fullness of grace and truth. And you might say, well, I can reckon with that. I can deal with Jesus being moved with compassion. I, I can see a compassionate Jesus because here's the thing. There's a lot of perspectives in the world about who God is and who he isn't. And listen, let me make a statement. How we see God doesn't change who he is. He is who he is. But because of experiences with earthly fathers, because of false teachings, because of religious spirits, there are a lot of people that see God one way and really he's another way. And I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'm just telling, making an observation. But, but let, we ought to dig into the word, and that's what we're about to do. God introduces himself to us in the word of God. And, and many people maybe say, well, I, I can reckon with a compassionate Jesus, but because of, a, because of a stern, authoritative presence in my life or because of some false thing that kind of got off, off track in my life, I can see Jesus as being moved with compassion, but, but I know that there must at the same time be God the Father up in heaven and he's got the Ten Commandments in his hand and he's got a baseball bat in the other hand and he, he's just waiting for me to watch an R-rated movie or, or do something really sinful like cheer for Tom Brady. And he's just looking and he's ready to just strike me or beat me down with that baseball bat. How many of you know there's a lot of people who see God that way? I mean, really, how many of you know? I mean, maybe some of you can even relate to that. Always just thinking that God is looking at, he's out to get you. I mean, man, you better hope that when Jesus comes back, you aren't at a, in, a, in a movie theater, buddy. Or doing something that is, could be mistaken for, for, you know, enjoyable. So what does God's word have to say? What, what, what does God's word have to say? If you read on verse 17 of that same chapter, John 1, it says, for the law was given through Moses, grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now catch this, catch this. No one has ever seen God, speaking of the Father, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, who has made him known. In other words, when you see Jesus, you see the Father. Jesus isn't kind of just a watered-down version of God that came to the earth, and God's really up there waiting to just strike you with lightning. It says, when you see Jesus, you see God. In fact, Hebrews 1.3 says that, when, that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. So it says, when you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. What did you see? The fullness of grace and truth. The fullness of grace and truth. Exodus chapter 33, back to the Old Testament. Let's look at God introducing himself. God has some things to say to us about who he is. And in Exodus 33, he's introducing himself in a deeper way to Moses. And Moses says in verse 18, he says, please show me your glory. Another translation says, now show me your glory. Like, like I've seen you do some things, but now show me your glory. I don't know what Moses expected, maybe thunder or lightning or whatever. But he's saying, now, Lord, would you show me your glory and watch what God says. It says, God responded and said this, I will make my goodness. Remember, Moses is saying, show me your glory. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And watch what he says. And he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. Really, God, Moses is saying, would you show me your glory? And I think he had a religious idea about something that was about to happen. A bunch of people that were enemies of God being smited or whatever. And, and we know that God is just. And we know that God is powerful. And we know that there's some things that God did in the word. But Moses is saying, show me your glory. And God's response is, I'll let you see my goodness. And I'll be gracious to whoever I want to be gracious to and merciful to whoever I want to be merciful to and aren't you grateful that God was long-suffering with you? Man, maybe I could just speak for myself. I'm grateful that God was patient with me. There were plenty of moments in time where if that was who he was up in heaven holding those Ten Commandments and that baseball bat or that thunderous lightning that was ready to strike someone down, I mean, I'm just telling you, I would not have passed the test. 
I would have been long gone. I'm grateful. Show me your glory, God. Show me your glory. And he says, I'll let you see my goodness. And I'm gracious and merciful, even to people who don't recognize me. Remember John 1. It says, we beheld his glory. Moses is saying, show me your glory. In John 1, it says, we... We beheld his glory. We saw Jesus. God came. Jesus was glorified. We saw grace and truth. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll, I'll let you see my goodness. And he says, I'll proclaim my name before you. And you turn the page to Exodus chapter 34 and verse 6, and God is keeping his promise to reveal a little bit more about who he is to Moses. And watch what he says. Again, remember, he's just said he's about to do this in the previous page, chapter 33. And now we turn the page, it's chapter 34, verse 6, and it says, the, So the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen, if you were introducing yourself to someone, I believe that there's an order of prominence that you would use to describe yourself, your interests, your enjoyments, your characteristics. And I got to thinking about it, I thought, you know, it would be like if, I went on Wheel of Fortune. Come on, where are my Wheel Watchers at? Who watches Wheel of Fortune? No one, I guess. Just me. <laughs> but you, you've seen it, right? Who's seen Wheel of Fortune at least one time in your life? Let me see that. All right, all right, there we go. And you know, at the beginning, Pat Sajak, you know, Vanna comes out and Pat comes out and Pat has the cue cards on there, you know, and he kind of clumsily makes his way through introducing the people, you know, and, and, he, and what it would be like if I went and I was a contestant on Wheel of Fortune and then I came back to Lawrence and I had a watch party and I invited my family, my wife and kids were there and I invited you guys to come and watch because I had made it on the big show and I had won the big prize at the end and at the beginning of the show, Pat, it would be like this, it would be like if Pat said, and next we have Thomas Humphreys and it says here, you're a fisherman and a golfer. And if I said, yes, Pat, I am. I think my wife would be like, really? That's the way you're going to introduce yourself to all the world? I think my kids would be like, what about, I mean, isn't being a husband and a father and a disciple and a Christ follower and a pastor of an amazing church more significantly important than being a fisherman or a golfer? Because listen, those are true. I love to golf and I love to fish. But there would be a prominence. Maybe we would get to that towards the end, you know, as I, after I had said, yeah, I'm a pastor of an amazing church with amazing people, and I'm a, I'm a proud husband and father, and I also enjoy fishing and golfing. Listen, there's an order of priority and prominence about how you introduce yourself. God's introducing himself, himself right here, and there are some things. He talks about being a just God who won't allow sin to go unpunished. That's the message of the gospel that was dealt with at the cross. He, he talks about that. He introduces himself that way, but the first thing he says is, I'm gracious and merciful. He says, if you're going to get to know me, you're going to get to know a gracious, merciful God. And everything else about who I am, you've got to see through the lens of grace and mercy. I, I, yes, I'm just over here. I am. I, I mean, at the same time, I'm just. But the, the prominence, the priority of how I want you to meet me is grace and mercy. We turn back to Exodus chapter 25, same book, just a few uh, chapters earlier. And God is giving the descriptions and the instructions for how to build and construct the Ark of the Covenant which was this amazing piece of furniture, this ornate thing that was constructed by the people of God to represent the presence of the Lord, and it, would, it had power in it and with it, and it would go before the people into battle and as they were traversing. And, and so he's given the instructions about how to build the Ark of the Covenant. It's a real thing. It's not just a Harrison Ford movie. And, and so he's giving the instructions, Exodus chapter 25, and watch, just watch this, just catch this. It's a little deep, but it's really profound, and it's powerful about how God wants to be known. And it says this, verse 21 of chapter 25, it says, Place inside the ark the stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant. In other words, the law, the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments on it. He said, put those inside the ark. And then if you read on, it says, You shall put the mercy seat, which was this ornate gold piece that was fitted to the piece of furniture that contained the law and that contained Aaron's staff or rod, the one that supernaturally budded, and it contained a pot of the manna that God had supernaturally delivered to provide for his people as they were sojourning from the place of captivity to the place of promise. Those three things were in the ark. And he said, on the top of the ark, put the mercy seat. Make a seat out of gold. 
and have, it, have a cherubim on one end and a cherubim on the other end and have them be looking downward and have the wings of the cherubim be covering the mercy seat. And he said, build it in such a way where the law is within it and the rod is within it. But the first thing you'll see when you look upon it is the mercy seat. And if you want to get to the law, you got to go through the mercy seat. He said, build it that way. It wasn't by accident. It was by divine design. Lord, show me your glory. I'll let you see my goodness. And I'll show up and I'll tell you a little bit more about who I am. I'm the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful. I want you to build something that's going to remind the people of me and it's going to represent me and it's going to carry my power and my presence. It's going to go with you and before you. And here's how I want you to build it. Yeah, the law is going to be there, the rules and regulations, the, the, the things that I want to encourage you to do and not to do. Those are going to be in there. But on the top of it, when people look at it, when they glance at it, they want to see the mercy seat. How do you see God? Do you see in, a, in every situation and circumstance that you're going through, the good times and the bad times, do you see him as full of grace and also full of the truth? I'm reminded of when Jesus was the woman who was caught in adultery. I mean, she was caught in the act. I don't think there's any debating that she really had done what they said that she had done. I don't know that she was really even defending herself. And Jesus, full of grace and truth. He, he's full of truth. At the end of the encounter, what did he say? He said, go and sin no more. Go and live differently. Go and think differently. Go and live a better life. But what led her to the strength, to the ability to live that life found in repentance was the kindness of Jesus. And he knelt down on his knees and he got in the dirt of the world that he had created and formed and fashioned you and I from and he had formed and fashioned he didn't just see some woman who was caught in the act of a sin. He saw a daughter. And he kneeled in the dirt and he began to write. And people kind of speculate about what he wrote. I think he might have been real specific, like maybe writing the name of a woman and drawing an arrow over here. Like this is your girlfriend and this is the person you cheated on with. I mean, to the Pharisees, who knows what he was doing. But whatever he did, it caused the religious leaders who, were, who, who knew the truth. They knew the word of God frontwards to backwards. And they were willing and ready right there to apply it to, their, to her life. And Jesus came and he said, I'm, I, I'm filled with truth, but you encounter my truth through my grace. And whatever he wrote in that dirt caused the religious leaders of the day who again were, I mean, they knew the truth, to drop the stones and walk away. And he said, who condemns you? She said, no one. He said, neither do I. And then he introduced the truth. He said, you've encountered my grace. You've encountered my mercy. You've encountered my kindness. Now go and live differently. Now begin to go and live out the truth. Come on, aren't you glad that God is filled with grace and truth in every moment, every circumstance, every situation in your life, even in the moments where you really did the thing? Inside that ark was the law and the rod, but the covering of it all was mercy. He's filled with grace and truth. So I wanna, I've got an acronym for you for how to kind of dive into this and, and, and really embrace and understand the power of grace in your life. Because grace is not just kind of a get out of jail free card or a way that we kind of just skirt into heaven. Grace is a powerful force to be reckoned with. Grace changed it all, it changed everything, and it set, set us on a course to knowing God outside of our own works and religious activities, but just based in an unmerited way, based on what Jesus did for us, for you, for me. So grace, and here I'm going to read, basically, it's, it's cool because the way the Lord gave this to me, it's actually an acronym, but it also reads as kind of a chronological statement of what grace accomplishes and empowers you in, to do in your life. So here it is, I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to unpack it letter by letter. So it says this, G is, is it's a gift, gives. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. Reaching us, there's the R in our darkest hour. Activating us, there's the A, to live for God and desire more of God. C, there's the C, calling us. And E, enabling and empowering us to live out that call. It gives us what we don't deserve reaching into our darkest hour, activating faith and a heart and a desire and a hunger to live for God, calling us to a purpose and empowering us and enabling us to fulfill that 
purpose. Number one is it's a free gift. Ephesians 2, verse 8 through 9 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but it is the gift. Somebody say gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Let me ask my married men in the room this, this morning, what would happen if you gave your anniversary gift to your wife and it came with an invoice for her to pay? Anyone want to give an idea? Anyone ever tried that? Oh, no, that, that man is dead. He's gone. You don't live to tell about that one. But how many of us, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but how many of us, we continue to try to pay the invoice for salvation with our religious acts and duties? And listen, there are some things, we, when we get saved, and that, we're about to get to that, there's a life that we ought to start living. There's a difference we ought to start making. There's a holiness that we ought to start pursuing. But we can never take credit for it. We say it, we pray it every week in this church when people, when we give people the opportunity to come home to Jesus and to receive the free gift of salvation, we pray it every week. We'll do it here in a few moments. We say, we're gonna pray this prayer together as a family. One, to show those people who are responding to God and coming home to him that there's a church family that wants to come alongside them and encourage them and help them and pray for them. And if they stumble, help them to get back up and keep moving. And two, we do it because even as we're growing, how do I say it? Even as we're growing in our faith, we never what? Graduate from grace. Everything I could ever do for God is all built upon the grace of God. It's a free gift. It can never be earned can never be deserved, never be earned, never be deserved. And here's the thing, R reaches into our darkest moments, our darkest hours. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says this, let us therefore come boldly, somebody say boldly, to the throne of what? Grace, the throne of grace. Isn't this powerful? There's a lot of things that could be descriptors of the throne right there that would actually be true about the throne, but when God wants us to see his throne, he wants us to see it as a throne of grace. But read on, and he says, let, he says, and this is talking about you and I. This is the invitation that you have from God. Think about this. This is powerful. He says, you can come boldly to my throne because it's a throne of grace. And read on. It says, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Other translations say when we need it most. Another translation says in our darkest hour. So it's not just on your good day. Come on, when you... When you have the self-discipline not to give someone, you know, tell someone they're number one when they cut you off in traffic or, 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 or cuss someone, you know, or whatever. I'm not just talking about on your good days because how many know even on your best days we don't deserve what God did for us? But he's saying you can actually come to God boldly in your time of need, your darkest moment when you're filled with doubt, confusion, when you're filled with anger and frustration anxiety, despair, I mean, your time of need, that's what he's saying, it's not religious language, he's saying there's gonna be a place in your life, in your marriage, in your health, in your finances where it's a time of need. And he says, in that moment, you can come boldly to me because my throne is a throne of grace. Ooh, it's a place where you don't have to, you don't have to get good to get me. You don't get good to get God. You get God and you start maybe start to get good because of God working on the inside of you. He said, you could come and obtain mercy and obtain grace at my throne because it's a throne of truth. It's a throne of power. Yes, it is, but it's also a throne of grace. You access my power, my truth through my grace. It reminds me of my testimony. I was a prodigal son. I prayed that every week and you guys see me praying it. And every week I try to pray it with even more passion and present that to people. I could do it because I was it. I was a prodigal son. I mean, I was blessed, man. I grew up in a good Christian home. I mean, God-fearing parents. Some of you have met them. And I grew up in an amazing church. I mean, a vibrant community of faith that was making disciples and, and ministering to people. And just an awesome atmosphere of worship. and I mean, it was just awesome. And I took it all for granted. And I was just like that prodigal son. I mean, I, I was a good kid. I was a hardworking young man, but I was out there. I mean, I was living in the world and everything that that entails. And my parents, after a few consecutive weekends of me coming home, drunk in the night and getting sick during the night and them finding things in my car and them putting two and two together and realizing I wasn't where I said I was gonna be. And, and by the way, before I finish this, I wanna just tell you there's... I, there, I wasn't planning on saying this, the Lord just reminded me of this. 
I hear a lot of times people telling their testimony, and listen, I'm grateful for the, I mean, God's used my testimony, he's redeemed it. He'll redeem whatever you're up against today. But I hear people say this, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing. And I understand what they're trying to say. They're trying to say everything that I went through has kind of shaped me and prepared me and kind of made me into the man or woman that I am. You know, the challenges and the struggles and everything kind of strengthened me and showed that God was, I understand what they're trying to say, but can I tell you if I could go back, I would change it all. I would change it all. I wouldn't go back and still live that way. I would go back and I would be a young man like this young man right here. There's a call on your life. And I would tell people about Jesus in my high school. What a missed opportunity. I, for me to say I wouldn't change it all, that diminishes the pain and the anxiety that my mom had at night as she knew I was out there up to who knows what. If I could go back, I would change it all. But I can't. So all I can do is just trust that God will use it and work in it. But after several weeks of coming home in the night, drunk and getting sick in the night, again, all the stuff that just goes along with that, my parents knew, they were on to me. And they called me into the living room and they set me down on their couch and they said, Thomas, you have ignored the authority that your mom and I have over your life. And they said, because you've disrespected our authority and you won't listen to what we're trying to help you to, to do and live, they said, we're turning you over to the authority of the laws of the state of Texas. I thought, well, what is that? <laughs> Woo, I, don't, I mean, I had a sense that this was not going to go well for me. <laughs> and all the things that I had been getting away with for three or four years, I mean, every weekend, every Friday, every Saturday, every time my parents were out of town, all the stuff I had been getting away with for many years, from that moment in time where my parents set me on that couch and said, we are turning you over to the authority of the state of Texas, I could not get away with one single cotton-picking thing. In Texas, that's how you say anything. <laughs> that weekend, not, the ne not two weekends from now, three weekends from now, that weekend I got pulled over at 2 a.m. for having my fog lights on on the bottom of my car, my Mitsubishi Eclipse. <laughs> Who even knew that that was illegal, right? And, of course, that wasn't why they were pulling me over, but it caused this whole process of me being in and out of jail and on probation, and I mean, if there was a house party that I was at, we were getting busted. I mean, really, you did not want me showing up at your house party. <laughs> I mean, think about that. The power that goes into that authority that my parents really, I mean, they said, because you have not listened to our earthly authority that God has delegated us to have in your life, we are turning you over to the authority of the state of Texas. And I mean, I, I, I couldn't get away with anything. It resulted in this, uh, after jumping from house party to house party or whatever, my, my, one of my buddies and I thought, hey, it's midnight, we've had a six pack, let's go fishing, that seems like a good idea. And young people, that's sarcasm, it is a terrible idea, it is not a good idea, it is a bad idea. And, and what resulted was we were driving out to Lake, Lake Meredith, north of Amarillo, Texas, right there in the Texas Panhandle, I'd been there a lot to fish, but... I, uh, I, you know, not a, not a ton, and so there's a, there's a hidden stop sign kind of over a hill on these little farm to market roads that kind of connect all around the lake, and we came over that hill, and there's a hidden stop sign right there at the three-way intersection that's kind of covered with a bunch of loose gravel, and I hit my brakes, and we skidded through the intersection, and off a ravine, my truck went airborne, hit the ground, bit my frame, threw my, my buddy's head into the windshield. And, j and remember, that my, my parents have turned me over to the authorities of the state of Texas. It wasn't three seconds, and there were two highway patrol pulled up right behind us. We did not have time to even think about, let's try to get out of here, let's hide the stuff, whatever, you know. I mean, they were right there with flashlights on us. The re what resulted was I got thrown in Hutchinson County Jail for the offense there, for the re revocation of my probation that I was on. And, and I expected that the next morning or the, when Monday came around, I would get the knock on my door and they would say, you've been bailed out. And I would go and I'd have to meet with my attorney. I'd probably have to go and meet with my pastor. I'd definitely have to meet with my parents. But that call didn't come. And I started thinking, and this was before cell phones and social media and everything. Come on, how many remember there was a day before we had all that? I mean, really, just me and a bunch of county guys that were in jail and a concrete bed and a, and a little cell and a toilet that was very public. <laughs> and me waiting and hoping and praying I mean, I don't have a cell phone. 
Later on that day, I got the message, but here's what the message was. Your parents have said that they're leaving you here. They've spoken with the county judge, and they've said that they think it would do you good to stay in here for at least a few days. Uh, Before you sit there in judgment, let me just tell you, I think my parents made the right decision. (laughs) I mean, if you knew all the stuff that had led up to that. So they left me in there for four or five days, and here's the thing is, that that, that didn't change me. I still could have got thrown back in that situation a number of times. What eventually changed me was the power of a praying mom who every time I was home for Thanksgiving or whatever, she was prophesying over me, she was speaking over me, she was claiming the word of God over me. I mean, every time I would go home, she would say, Thomas, I want to remind you, there's a purpose and there's a plan that God has for your life. You are going to lead many people to Jesus. You're going to preach the word of God, and my skin would crawl. Because, I, I mean, I wasn't about that, you know. I'm standing here doing what she spoke over me. Whatever your kids look like, whatever your marriage looks like, come on, you need to start speaking what God has to say about it. You speak over it. You prophesy over it. You declare, I am standing in this pulpit preaching the word of God, and at the end of this service will lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ because of the power of a praying mom who would prophesy over my life. She didn't care the way it looked at the moment. She just knew what God had in his heart for me. So I got to move quickly. Um, I got saved, radically saved. And my brother, who I had led into a life of debauchery, was a little slower in coming to know the Lord. And so there was a time where I was, I was serving. I mean, I, I got radically saved. I mean, I, I got saved. I got, like, saved. <laughs> I knew right when I got saved, I, I mean, the Lord started, to, I was like, I, I can't be friends with all those people. I mean, I'm not going to reject them, but I can't hang out with those people anymore. I can't be about what they're doing. And I went and had that conversation, and the Lord told me, go back to Amarillo, buy a guitar, start serving in the college ministry. I knew I was called to ministry. But my brother remained in the world for a year and a half. And there was a time where I invited him. I would call him. I'd say, Preston, come to church. Come to church. Come to college group. Come hang out with me. Come spend time with me. Because we, I, I just felt the burden of all those times where he looked up to me. And I had taken him along for all that other stuff that we had been doing. And I invited him to come. And he said, no, I've got a concert I'm going to down in Austin, Texas. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll catch you guys next week. And that night, after the church conference, and we were home, we got a phone call, and my brother had been in an accident in Austin, Texas, on his way to the concert. He had started drinking. He rear-ended someone. He'd been thrown in Travis County Jail. Keep in mind, my parents, just a few months earlier, before I got saved, had let me sit in Hutchinson County Jail for five days. And so I'm sitting there watching. I'm thinking, and, 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 and I didn't want that for him, but I'm just watching, like, the precedent has been set. <laughs> and my mom, she said, she said, let's pray. And they prayed. I said, Lord... We just ask that you would protect Preston wherever he is with the people he's interacting with. Just cover him. Remind him that he's a child of yours. Remind him that he's a son of yours. And my mom came out of that prayer time and she said, here's what we're going to do. She said, we're going to call the nicest, finest hotel in downtown Austin. I think it was the Hilton Anatole or something like that. And she said, we're going to get the penthouse or the bridal suite, the biggest, the best room that they have, regardless of the cost. We're going to bail him out. We're going to call a taxi. Who remembers before Uber? You know, you actually had to call a taxi. And the taxi's going to pick him up. And he's not going to know where he's going, but that taxi driver's going to know where he's going. And he's going to take him to the finest hotel in Austin. And they're going to check him in. And they're going to take him up to the top floor in the biggest room that they've got. And that night... My brother, reading a Gideon Bible, got saved and gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's a pastor of a church in Texas. He's a bold preacher of God. Listen, it's a picture of unmerited, undeserved grace. Man. I deserve the jail cell. I deserve the penalty. I deserve the punishment. And God has given me the penthouse. Grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, blessing. Grace reaches into our darkest hour. Grace activates. I got to move quick. I'm going to give these to you real quickly, then we're going to ask the Lord to minister to your heart today. Grace activates us to live for God. Grace was so powerful that the Apostle Paul actually had to kind of bring some clarity. People were saying, if grace is abounding where sin abounds, can we just go on sinning? He said, let it not be so. He said, if we've been rescued from sin, we ought to start living by grace for God. It activates us to live for God. (laughs) 
Titus 2, rather, 11 and 12 says this, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, all people. That includes you. Regardless of what you're going through today. Watch, and it says it, speaking of grace, speaking of grace, it, grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Man, when you get a revelation of what grace has done in your life, it doesn't make you want to sin. It makes you want to know God. And more than know God, it makes you want to serve God. Man, you're telling me there's a God who saw me in my sin and my trespasses, my pride, my rebellion, and he loved me so much in that condition that he sent his only son to lay down his life, though he was perfect, and pay the price and take the punishment upon himself that I deserve so that I might be rescued out of that life into a life where I have peace with God and a life where I have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and access to his promises and to his presence? Sign me up for that. Man, I, I mean, I... I I don't want this anymore. Grace teaches us. Grace calls us. Grace activates us. Man, who's, who's here today who, you've been walking the fence. And today, just this reminder by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, is, I mean, God's calling you today to get off the fence. Get off the fence. Start serving and living for and desiring more of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. It activates us. Real quickly, these are the last two, the C and the E. It calls us and it enables us. The Bible says he's saved us and he has called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. He's called you to something, man of God. He's called you to something, woman of God. And it might not look like this, what I'm doing. I'm telling you, there's something that's even more significant. Whatever it is that God's called you to in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in your community, in this church, regardless of what it looks like, it's significant to the heart and to the purposes of God. And he's not called you to it because of anything. He's not, not called you to it because you're the smartest or the best or the brightest, and some of you are that. He said because of his purpose and his what? His grace. Man, when I look at the Bible, I'm so thankful. I mean, I see men and women that were completely flawed and imperfect that God redeemed their story and used them for his purposes. I mean, just think about it. Abraham was a liar. Jacob was a deceiver. Noah was a drunkard. Moses was a murderer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. And, and somehow those were the people that he saw fit to call into some of the most prominent purposes of God. That is, I don't know that that's how I would have done it, but it's how God did it. Why? Because of grace. Grace. He didn't want some smooth-talking person to get the, Moses was a stutterer. Paul, it says, look, check out what it says about Paul. He says, I was the least of the apostles. And then it says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is Paul writing about himself, and it says, for they say about me, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. That's kind of a biblical kind way to say he was unattractive and he couldn't talk good. <laughs> That's who you would think if you were calling the foremost apostle to the New Testament church, you would call someone who when they showed up on the scene, there was a stature and a presence and a boldness and a voice. But That's not how God works. And the apostle Paul goes on, he talks about weakness and thorns in his flesh and things that God caused to happen in his life to keep him humble and it resulted in this he, re he recognized God's grace is sufficient for me he said I asked God Lord why couldn't you make me different why couldn't you heal me or change me or whatever and God said my grace is sufficient for you I made you just like I needed to make you to do what I've called you to do but I'm going to put you in some places that require you to desperately desire and depend upon me you can't do it in your own strength you're going to, to be the husband, to be the wife, to raise the kids, you're going to have to apprehend the grace of God. Stand to your feet, would you stand? Several groups of people I want to minister to you right now. I want to minister to anyone who's, I already kind of did, but anyone who's walking the fence because of the power of grace. I mean, you know God, you love God, but you're just not living for God. 
And right now, if that's you, I just want you to do business with God. Just, just repent. That's not a bad word in church. That just means I'm going to start thinking and living differently. And, and the Holy Spirit, the enemy brings condemnation, but the Holy Spirit brings conviction to lead you out and draw you to God's very best for your life, for your marriage, for your family. So just do business with him. If that's you, just begin to respond to the Lord. Just tell him in your own words, Lord, I'm going all in. I want to live for you. Thank you for the grace that saved me. Now I want to give my life to you. And, and I also want to pray over relationships, marriages, and families, and family relationships that are strained or their strife, that the Lord will bring a fresh season of grace. And that maybe in an atmosphere where you've apprehended or been reminded of God's extravagant grace towards you, maybe we begin to be a little bit more gracious with one another. And it causes the atmosphere to begin to shift where the truth of the matter, I mean the real problems, the real things that need to shift or change or be addressed can begin to be addressed through the atmosphere of grace, through the mercy seat of God. If that's you, come on, just receive it. In fact, if now let's just do something that kind of covers us all. If you want to walk in more of the grace of God, just lift your hands before God. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your grace. We, don't, we can never earn it, never deserve it. Thank you, Lord, that it gives to us what we don't deserve, reaching into our darkest hour, activating us to desire to live for God, calling us to a kingdom purpose, and empowering us and enabling us to accomplish it. That's what grace is. That's what it does in our lives. We're so thankful. Man, just tell the Lord, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Oh, man, I mean, today, I just believe that this there are some marriages, there are some hearts, there are some homes that today, because of this message, they are going to shift to a new place and a new season. And I thank you for that, Lord, today. Lastly, you can lower your hands if you want, or you can keep them up. Before we worship one more time and get you about your day, if you're here and you're far from God, you're that prodigal son or daughter, or maybe you've never experienced, never put your faith in Jesus, never received what it feels like to have all the weight of all the sin and the guilt and the shame removed off of you, that's the message of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to do. If that's you, you're a prodigal son or daughter, you've drifted from God, or you've never received forgiveness through Jesus, right now, don't wait, right now. Lift your hand towards heaven. Just say, that's me, Pastor T. I need to come home to God. That's me, Pastor T. I need Jesus. I need the forgiveness for my sins. I need a fresh start, a new life. If you're online, you're joining us online, I think it's important. Even if you're by yourself, stand to your feet, lift your hand. You're not responding to a preacher. You're responding to, to a father. And if you raised your hand, you can lower it. And here's where we get to that moment I alluded to earlier. Let's pray this prayer together. Come on, repeat after me. Father, in Jesus' name, I recognize my need for a Savior. I thank you for sending Jesus to pay the price I could not pay to make a way that I might have a new life and a fresh start. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Because of the cross of Jesus, I will never be the same. Come on, say it again. Because of